This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture for today is from John 16, verses 23 through 28, found on page 903 in your pew Bible. John 16, verse 23 through 28. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." So, Father God, you are, you're full of grace and truth and love. That's who you are. You are the gracious one. You lead us into truth. You have nothing but love toward us. You are loving. I was blown away by that as I was even hearing Abby read that again, that the Father loves us. You love us. You love us. And, and what's striking is you will stop at nothing to remove any barriers or impediments or junk that we put between you and me, between you and us. You will stop at nothing. I mean, all we have to do is just look at Jesus. You will go, you will go so far. You will even sacrifice yourself just to remove stuff between us. That's the kind of God that you are. And we walk into this room week in and week out That's who you are. We walk in here with things that impede that. Like we we walk in, maybe sometimes we walk into this room like dull from just getting like bumped around through the week. We walk in with like maybe seeds of like bitterness in us or or maybe maybe even faced with this word, we go, man, that's not my experience. Like I I don't feel that. Like I've, I've asked God, I've pursued, I've, and he didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't give me what I thought I needed. And so when I hear a word like this, that you'll give us whatever we wish, that, you, that we abide in you, you abide in us, and you'll give us whatever we want, we actually don't take you at your word. We don't think about the extravagance of your love. We actually are suspicious of you. Like, what are you holding out on us? What, we, we lean back. Man, like in, in some ways, that's all of us in this room. God, would you reveal yourself this morning? Would you reveal yourself in all your majesty and glory? Would you take those things that we're bringing into this room? We can't just dump them at the door. So all of us have them right now. Would you help us hold those? And would you turn the volume down on those in our hearts and in our minds? And would you turn the volume up on your grace on your truth, on your love that is directed toward us, 
so that we can experience all of that. We can experience who you really are in your, we can experience your presence. This morning, God, we pray that in your name. Amen. So several weeks ago, I preached the beginning of John 15, um, that we abide in Christ as we let his word abide in us. The main point of that sermon was that our most urgent need before God is that we let his words abide in us, that we let Jesus abide in us through his words, being connected to him, drawing our strength from him, and that we do this by letting his words in us. So today, what I want to do is preach um, part two of that sermon. So part one was about letting the word of God through the Bible dwell in us, that we might let Christ abide in us. Then that verse goes on to say that if we do this, we can ask whatever we want, and he'll do it. And we can ask him uh, whatever we want, and then it'll be done for us. And today, I want us to see how it is that we can ask whatever we want in prayer. How is it that God can say that? How is it that we can ask God whatever we want in prayer? And to set the stage there, before we jump into that, I want to set the stage, the context a little bit before we jump in. Now, remember, Jesus is with his closest friends, his disciples, the night before he is charged, before he is tried, and he is killed and buried. And he knows that their hearts are going to be tested in the coming hours. He has told them many times over and over and over that he is going away, that he won't be with them, that he will die. He's told this over and over, but he also knows that when it actually happens, it's going to catch them off guard. Like they're not prepared for the the struggle. They're not prepared for the heartbreak. They're not prepared for what's actually going to happen. So in these final words of Jesus to his disciples, he's giving them some stability, something stable. He's giving them concrete truths that they can like put their hands on and hold on to that will not uh, change. As things around them begin to shake, as life starts to crumble, the things that they'd hoped for, the things that they dreamed of, the things that they thought were going to happen, as those things kind of fall away and there's this gap between what they thought was going to happen and reality around them, he wants in their minds and in their hearts some concrete truths that are promises from God himself. Jesus tells them, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that without me physically with you, you aren't going to have what you believe you most need. And here's what Jesus wants them to grab onto. Here's what he wants them to grab onto, and here's what he says. But I'm telling you, I'm leaving to secure for you what you most need. I am leaving with a purpose to give you what you most need. I'm leaving so that you can have access to your heavenly father directly. So you can have uh, communion with him directly. And I'll send you the helper, the spirit of God, who will show you the way. Jesus says, I know it appears that, uh, that, that I won't, like, that he won't have me. I know it appears that Oh, you won't have me if I leave, but I'm telling you, my spirit will return to you for I'm securing access by which you can ask whatever you need from the Father. Now, what we're going to do to see that is um, typically what I do is I'll work just through a, a, a section of scripture, just verse by verse, and just follow the logic of, uh, of the passage, pretty word for word or verse by verse. But I want to do something a little different this morning. I actually want us to zoom out just a little bit in this section. Zoom out just a, a little bit to see how Jesus is accomplishing this, pros, uh, this promise by looking specifically at the work of each person of the Trinity. 
So saying that God is Trinity is simply acknowledging the reality of who God is. That God uh, is one God. He is one God existing as three persons. The Christian God, the God of the Bible, is a God who exists in a perfect communion, a beautiful, perfect communion as Father, Son, and Spirit. It is a beautiful reality. It is perfect. It is beautiful. It's also confounding. It's also mesmerizing. You can't wrap your brain around it. And we don't need to worry about that too much because if we could wrap our minds around it, he wouldn't be much God to worship, right? So the fact that we can't fully understand that actually makes us wonder about it. It actually brings us into the awe of that. But the Father, Son, and Spirit as one God are equal and each of them possess differing roles in redemption, but we're gonna see that they also possess differing roles in our prayer lives as well. So how can you go to a God to ask whatever? How is it that we have access? How is it that it's better for Jesus to leave us to secure access? So here's what, here's what I want us to see. We pray in Jesus's name because he's our mediator. We, we then have access to the love of the Father revealed and guided by the Spirit. Those are the three things we're gonna walk through. That we we pray in Jesus' name as our mediator who gives us access to the love of the Father revealed and guided by the Spirit. So let's jump into that first one, that we pray in Jesus' name. So would you turn with me to chapter 14, verse 13. So John 14, verse 13, if you've closed your Bibles. <clears throat> okay, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay, so this in my name. Hey, if you grew up in a Christian family or been around church for any amount of time, you've likely picked up this phrase at the end of a prayer. It's probably something you just like adopted as something that you do in your prayers, right? You pray, God, would you help this person? Would you be with this person? Would you give me this thing? I need help in this thing in my life. And then what do you do? You go, in Jesus' name, amen, right? And it kind of like rattles off your tongue. You may, it may be kind of mindless. It's kind of automatic, what we have to see here is this isn't just something you say. This isn't just a throwaway statement. The reason we pray in Jesus's name and not our own name is because we have no rights to go to God apart from Jesus. That, that, that's why we say that. That's why we put that at the end of our prayers. It's acknowledging that, God, I have no rights to pray anything I just said, but Jesus actually gives me the rights to share this. He actually uh, opens the door. If you try to go to God apart from Jesus, you're destroyed, actually. You, 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 you can't. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that the cost of our sin is death. So apart from Jesus, God is angry toward you. He's rightfully wrathful toward you. In his love, in his justice, he must punish sin and he actually has wrath toward you because you are sinful. So God, in his love, in his grace, put Jesus between us to accept and receive all of the right wrath from the God the Father so that he wouldn't incinerate you, 
when you come into his presence. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, we can walk right into the presence of God, the Father, and not be consumed by his beauty and by his glory. Oftentimes um, in the business world, sometimes a, a person of importance or level of position is expressed by like how many people you have to like get through to just get to that person, right? Like their level of importance is how many people you have to navigate just to get this person on the phone. Like if you called a prestigious law firm, how many people do you have to talk to just to get the person whose name's on the building on the phone with you? Like you, you call the place, you get the front secretary, that secretary then like transfers you over to the department head who transfers you to an associate who transfers you maybe if you're lucky to the assistant of that person. And then that person, well, who are we kidding? That's about as far as you get. Like that person's job is kind of like to play goalie to not let you get to the main person, right? Like that's all you're gonna get because the big guy's busy. He's in a meeting. Of course, he's golfing or taking a nap or he's doing whatever he's doing that day, but you'll never know, you're not gonna talk to him. Whatever the case, you ain't talking to him today. You have to navigate three or four or five different people just to get to that spot. If you showed up to the White House today to uh, see if you can get the president, um, how many people do you have to charm? How many people do you have to navigate just to get someone, and you're probably not even gonna get anyone who's even remotely associated with the president, right? In Jesus's day, if you just showed up to a royal palace, how many officials would you have to negotiate and you likely wouldn't stand a chance of seeing any royalty for the day? This is not so of the kingdom of God. This is not so of the way that God deals with us. Look at chapter 16, verse 23. We're gonna see the same thing we saw in, verse, or in chapter 14, but even more emphatically. Chapter 16, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. So praying in Jesus's name means we believe Jesus alone is our mediator. Jesus gives us access to go straight to the Father. Uh, up until this, they had to navigate relating to God through temple or through the priests, or they were separated by walls or curtains or rituals. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, there are efforts by some Christians to reinvent some like system of hierarchy that you have to now navigate and insist that you go through them rather than directly to the center. Jesus tells us, up until now, you haven't asked anything in my name. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying, no one has ever, ever uttered the name or the, the phrase in Jesus's name before this. But, but, but now, but after my death and resurrection, it will be the only phrase that will get you instant, immediate, direct access to the Father. So we pray in Jesus's name because he's our mediator to give us access to the love of the Father. That's, that's point number two. We're gonna look at how we relate to the Father then. Who gives us access to the love of the Father? So Jesus alone is our mediator, the only way by which we come into the presence of the Father. But check out what Jesus says in verse 26 through 28. Put your eyes back on those verses. Verse 26 through 28 of chapter 16. This might shock us a little bit. Um, this might seem a little odd to us. Jesus says, don't make me more of a mediator than I am. 
Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, but I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Interesting. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus says, I'm not going to insert myself between you and the Father as though you just can't go to him directly. You you can go to him directly because of my sacrifice and you can go directly to him because he loves you. This is amazing and, and pretty startling. Like, Jesus is warning us not to think of God as unwilling to receive us. He's more than willing. We can go directly into his presence. And by directly, I mean what Jesus meant when he said, I'm not going to take your request to God for you. You may go to him directly to him because he loves you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to come. He's not angry at you. Now, maybe there's some like, some of you guys are going, okay, hold on. How's this square with other things that are true about how Jesus relates to God for us. Hey, it's absolutely true that no sinful human being has any access to the Father except through the blood of Jesus. That's Hebrews 10, 19. He intercedes for us now, Romans 8, 34. He is our advocate with the Father now. That's 1 John 2, 1. He is our high priest before the throne of God now, which is uh, Hebrews 4, 15. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Yes, all of that is true. Amen. Yes. But, but Jesus is protecting us from taking his intercession too far. He says, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Jesus is there. Jesus is present. He is providing an ever present, ever living witness to the removal of the Father's wrath for us. He's saying they have rights to be here. Because of my sacrifice, this person can come into your presence. Because of me, because of my name, because of my work, they have rights to be here. I've earned it from them, for them. They haven't earned it for themselves. I've earned it for them. He is our advocate. But Jesus isn't playing telephone between us and the Father. He isn't there to do the talking for us or to keep us at a distance from the Father or to continue receiving the Father's wrath. He's not even there to suggest that the Father's heart is guarded toward you. He, he, he's not even there to like, um, like the Father isn't disinclined to receive you or upset for mistakes that you've made. Hence the words, the Father himself loves you. So we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So now we are able to come into the Father's glorious presence, into his presence to be received by him because we are wearing the righteous robe of Jesus, his righteousness. We are protected from the wrath of God. So come, so come boldly. Come boldly, Hebrews 4.16. Come expectantly, come accepting a smile from God the Father toward you. That's his face toward you if you are in Jesus. Come trembling, but with joy, not dread. Jesus says, I have made a way to God. Now I'm not going to get in the way, so come to him. Guided and revealed by the spirit of God. So pray in Jesus's name as our mediator who gives you full access to the heavenly father revealed and guided by the helper, the spirit of God.
So throughout these couple of chapters, Jesus gets peppered over and over and over. You can read through this this afternoon. The disciples asking questions. They're confused. They don't really understand what Jesus kind of laying out there for them. He says he's leaving. He's coming. What is he talking about? They're asking him questions. And then most of all, they're really confused and not sure what he's saying. Why couldn't the spirit just come while Jesus stayed with them? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever, ever wondered that? Why did Jesus have to leave them in order for the Spirit to come? Well, let's find out. John 16, 7. So flip over to the left just a little bit. John 16, 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus believes it's better for us that he goes away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now we should ask, well, why not? Um, And let's watch what he says here. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now here's what what he's gonna do. So he outlines the, the purpose of him sending him to us. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he unpacks what that means. And there's three things that that means. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So we see that the resurrection and ascension um, show the world to be wrong. That's what he's talking about here. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus show the world to be wrong and it shows the verdict to the world about the justice of Jesus's crucifixion and it proves that the world is guilty. It proves that we are guilty before Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's work is to make that reality clear. The Holy Spirit's uh, job is to make it clear after the resurrection. Then in verse 11, we read, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, when did that happen? When did that happen? The judgment of Satan was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's Colossians 2.15. That has been done for us. And then finally in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. And then he tells us, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will listen to me. The spirit of God will take all the words that I've been sharing with you over these last three years, and he'll remind you of them. He will guide you. He will put those in your heart. You'll put those in scripture and write those down for all Christians in all times so they can actually hear the words that I've written. And he'll make those come alive to us so that we will hear as if Jesus was telling us. He'll make those alive to us and guide us according to the truth. He will declare to you the things that are come. And then here's an important ending here. And I would underline this if I were you in your Bible. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. All of these things the Spirit will do. Okay, we just covered a lot of ground. So let me slow us down a little bit here and walk through that. This whole time when Jesus keeps referring to his leaving, he's referring to his death 
for sin. He, he's referring to him going to the cross. Now we could think, we could make the assumption that he's referring to his ascension into heaven, but I don't think that's the case because when he returns to them, he, or when he resurrects, he's actually gonna return to them again before he leaves again. And his first departure of him going to die for sins is all about securing access to the father for them. And this, is, this, this action has huge implications for the work of the spirit. Unless Jesus dies for our sins, then the Spirit of God cannot come and do the most critical and most important essential role to convict us of our sins, to reveal Jesus' power over death and resurrection, and reveal the corruptness, the folly of the world. He, he will guide us into what is true. And none of this stuff happens until Jesus goes to the cross and conquers death. None of that happens. The Spirit has nothing to point to until Jesus' work is done. But even, now I was thinking about this this week. Okay, that's powerful, but check this out. But even Jesus' death for sin and grace purchased on the cross isn't automatically applied. Like Jesus' work on the cross is powerful. It changed everything. But think about it. It wasn't automatically applied to us, right? Like that happened, but we were still in our sin, we were still separated from God. It's to your advantage, Jesus says, that he goes away and does that, but his salvation isn't automatic for you or for me or for anyone. This is why Jesus says it's to our advantage that he leaves because Jesus must go pay for your sins to secure access to the Father, but it's also to our advantage because until he does that, the Spirit of God cannot come to open your eyes to the beauty of that, to the to the scandalous beauty of what Jesus has done, to open your eyes, to make that beautiful to you and make you long for it, to make you want it, to actually see your need to grab hold of it. And here's what the helper does. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter three, would you flip there for me, for me please? Go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's to the right in your Bible. Second Corinthians 3.18. Paul tells us, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we all with an unveiled face now Beholding the glory of the Lord. What's the role of the Spirit? To glorify Jesus, it said, right? Jesus said that. We get to behold the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the Spirit reveals to us the truth and fact that Jesus' resurrection and his achievements over sin and Satan on the cross and gives us eyes of faith to look at the glory of the Lord. And when we're able to stare at the beauty and majesty and glory of the Lord, what happens? What happens? We're transformed, we're changed. We are changed into the likeness of Jesus. And he adds this at the end of that. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Yes, 
Yes, Jesus purchased our salvation and he alone is our mediator, but our hearts are evil and wicked and sinful. And Paul tells us in Romans that our hearts are like empty graves. There's nothing in us that can reach out and see that as beautiful. For sure, Jesus has secured us a path to the presence of God, but it's the spirit of God who pulls away the veil who opens our eyes to the glory of that, to make us long for that, to see our need for it. The Spirit comes to take our sinful and corrupt hearts and he convicts us of the sin that separates us from God. He reveals the reality and the fact of the resurrection and he reveals the folly of this world, meaning all the things that we've been trying to do to make our lives enough, to make ourselves happy, to fill in the gap of our lives. He he causes us to look at those things and know the truth about God and ourselves. And all of this is for the glory and majesty of Jesus, that we would see Jesus as he truly is. This is the essential role of the Spirit of God to reveal to us the glory of Jesus in the gospel, to see the gospel and know it's our only hope, to know that's the only thing that makes us right before God. The Spirit causes us to see the glory of Jesus Christ and thus he transforms his church into the image of Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. Our God is unbelievable. Like he will go to no ends. Like he will go all the way. He will do whatever he can to commune with us, to remove any barrier that stands between us and him. Do you see that looking at the different persons of the Trinity and their contribution to bringing us into presence with them, to commune with them, it's just It's unbelievable. Look at the work of Jesus living and dying and resurrecting to purchase for you access to the presence of God forever. He has purchased you that forever. Look at the love of the Father who loves you and desires to answer your prayers. He longs to hear them and answer them and give them freely to you. Look how you're not left alone. You are not alone. You have the helper, the spirit of truth that guides you and enables you to love Jesus for for what he's done for you. God has moved all the way toward you. He has gone to such great lengths to provide a pathway for us to be with him. Jesus says to abide in him and him and us. If you abide in me and I in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. I cannot think of any other question to ask right now than are we asking He has gone to such great lengths, such scandalous things that we couldn't even imagine doing. And he's done all of it so that his love could be unimpeded toward you so that he can answer any request that you need. Are we asking? Are we asking? Are we walking into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, guided by the truth of his spirit and asking, are you not in a place personally where you have needs? Like, do you have needs? Does our church have needs right now? Does our society have needs? Are we not putting ourselves over and over and over, picking ourselves up and putting ourselves down in his presence saying, would you meet my needs? I have needs. I need you to guide me, to be with me, to help me through this. We need his help. And are we earnestly desiring it? Are we earnestly asking for it? Um, I want to end by turning us to Zechariah. Would you flip to the left in the Old Testament, page 799 to Zechariah? Here's where we're going to end. Zechariah chapter 13. 
Zechariah 13, verse 8. Um, this passage may seem a bit random, uh, but I think it, it shows one of the main ways that God wakes us up. Man, if we aren't putting ourselves in the presence of God and asking him and asking him to meet our needs, then it's likely we've been dulled. We've been maybe even like lazy. We're undisciplined. We're, we're lulled to sleep or caught up in all the other cares that happen around us. And we're like dulled to the things that we actually need and that we know we need God's help with. Look with me in verse eight, uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verse eight. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. So the one third represents God's remnant. Now, this is important to note. His faithful, imperfect, weak people who do not pray with the kind of discipline and desperation and joy and hunger for God that they should, this is his remedy here. This is the way he's going to fix it. What, what does he do to teach them on how to come to him and ask whatever they need? What is his school for prayer? Let's look at it in verse nine. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Now notice carefully what's happening. In his great love, God has saved one third right? Like we looked at the pruning shears of God a couple weeks ago. In his love, he prunes. In his love, he has saved a third from being cut off. And then as part of that love for them, he puts them in the fire to be tested and refined. This is, this is important. This is normal Christianity, this is normal. We've been talking a lot as pastors over the last several months, like kicking around the, the, the passage in 1 Peter that Peter tells uh, one of his churches. In 1 Peter 4.12, he says this to encourage Christians. This is to encourage normal Christians acting like normal Christians in their world. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, this is normal. If it were strange, it would be abnormal. He's saying it's not strange. It's normal for Christians to go through suffering. And not just like some generic suffering, suffering for being Christians. In his context, he's talking about a fiery trial, which is Nero taking Christians, lighting them on fire to light up his gardens. We're not experiencing anything in the ballpark of that. And yet he says, this is normal. In our unique time, in our age, we will suffer. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But what is it that God wants to see change in his people? Let's continue reading in Zechariah verse nine. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. How simple is that? How simple that's literally all he says. They'll call my name and I'll answer them. It's almost like what we just read in John, what Jesus says. Nothing about their sex lives, nothing about their hurts, nothing about their confusion of their circumstance, nothing about their money, nothing about their power struggles. He just says, when they come through the fire, they will pray to me and I'll answer them. God puts his people through the fire to awaken them to earnest prayer. 
God puts us in the fire so that we would see our need for him and we would come to him as needy children. Man, the last couple of years have been difficult in our culture, in our church. Um, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you this morning. Don't make this the reason that you've given up on prayer. Don't make this the reason why you're carrying around bitterness in your heart that's causing you to lean away from God. Don't, don't become withdrawn, embittered, or skeptical of the hand of God and how he's answering your prayers. Don't grow distant. Don't grow cold. Do not be surprised by any of this, of what's happening around us. Don't be surprised by any of this. Do not think that this last year is strange. See this season of suffering as it truly is, as a divine gift, as a divine gift from the hand of God designed to teach us to put ourselves back regularly, regularly over and over in front of him, in his presence, so that we could receive his love and be dependent on him. This is a gift. This is a gift. It will be a gift to us. Are you going to him? Are you earnestly desiring? Are you putting yourself in front of him? If we do this as he promises us, look at the end of verse nine. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Let's pray. Father, you love us, you love us, you love us. You love us, not like we love you. We say we love you, then we go off and forget. We say we love you, and then we do things that are contrary to that love. And so many times don't even see the contradiction. You love us. You have demonstrated your love for us. That your love wasn't a concept or an idea, you put skin on it. You came in the person of Jesus and you demonstrated your love for us that while we were sinners, you died for us. You brought us into God's presence, God the Father, so that we could receive his love. And you love us so much that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us as orphans. You guide us. You speak to us. Your word is truth. God, we just... We want to be near you. We want to be near you. Would you bring us back into your presence? Would you turn up the dial of our earnestness for where we're at so that we can be near you? And I recognize when I pray that we want to be near you, you're the kind of God that answers all of those prayers. But I, I recognize that you, you answer prayers the ways that we don't even think we wouldn't see it as answering the prayer. We have so many different views of you answering our prayers and expectations of you, but you deliver. You deliver every time. When we ask to be near you, you're the kind of God that breaks our hearts because you say you're near the brokenhearted and you answer, you answer. <laughs> I doubt the people in Zechariah saw you answering anything through the pain and the suffering they walked through. God, would you give us grace in those spaces? And I even recognize when I ask for grace, 
You're the kind of God that looks in us into the heart and sees the pride within us that would keep us from receiving your grace. So to answer that, you oppose it. And that doesn't feel good. You humble us, you humiliate us, you put us, you put us low so that we can be raised back up in your grace so we can experience it in real tangible ways. We ask for your kingdom to come. Would you bring your kingdom back? Would you bring your kingdom to fruition? Would you bring it in the life of Redeemer? Show us your kingdom. And I recognize when I pray that, it means we're gonna see our spiritual poverty because your kingdom is given to those who are poor in spirit. So God, would you bring your kingdom anyway? Would you take everything away from us that impedes us from you? Would you remove it? Would you, would you, by your grace, spirit of the living God, convict us? Would you show us the face of God and his righteousness? And would you put in us, would you put in us a desire to earnestly seek you? That we could ask you whatever, and that you would give it to us and that we would see it as good. We pray in your name, amen. <clears throat> so on this night when Jesus was meeting with his disciples, talking through these things for them to have confidence in, he again told them about his death. And he took a piece of bread, he took a loaf and he broke it. <clears throat> and he said, here in a little while, my body's gonna be broken so that you can be brought back into the presence of God. My body will be broken for you. And he took a, took a glass of wine and he said, this represents my blood that's going to be shed for you so that it covers you, so that it covers your sins, so that it brings you back into relationship with God. If that's your hope, if Jesus' sacrifice is where you're placing your hope, that alone brings you into the presence of God, then you're a Christian. And we invite you to come and take communion. We'll have servers here in the front and in the middle and on both sides of the balcony with an allergy-free option over to my right. The way we take communion is by tearing a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And uh, all those who are trusting Jesus for their, for their righteousness are welcome to come and take communion. However, I also recognize there's some of us in the, in the room that haven't put our faith in Jesus. Perhaps you've been asking things of God. Perhaps you've been asking, God, would you meet me here? Would you help me make sense of my life here? Would you help me make sense of places where I've got doubts or places where I've, I haven't found purpose or take, uh, walking through places of suffering in your life? And you're wrestling with these questions before God and it feels like God is at a distance from you. Like perhaps you walk into this room asking questions and searching for things, but God feels distant. He doesn't feel like he's listening. He feels far from you. I want to, I want to encourage you in one specific way. Um, if you're bringing your needs and your desires to God, but haven't allowed Jesus to deal with your greatest needs for your sins to be dealt with, um, then it, it is impossible it is impossible for you to bring those things before God. It, you don't have rights into his presence. It is by through Jesus alone that you have rights into the presence of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. In John, it says that God loves 
all of us, loves the world. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to come and live a life that you should have lived, die a death that you deserve to die and receive the wrath of God so that you could be brought into his presence and made whole, so that you could actually experience the love of the Father toward you, so you're not hopeless. You actually, quite the opposite, you get to experience the love of Jesus if you put your faith in Jesus even now. If you desire this in light of what we just discussed, in light of what we just learned, ask the Spirit of God to make sense of this to you. Like right now in your seat, ask the Spirit of God to remove the veil from your eyes, to see Jesus as glorious, as he truly is, that he died for you and loves you, and that he would even reveal the places that you're holding on to that are actually like, like sand in your hands. You can't quite grasp it. Would he reveal that to you? And we have prayers in your seat back that you could grab that would give some language to those kinds of prayers. Um, don't come and take communion if you haven't taken Jesus and use this time to ask the spirit of God to reveal that to you. And of course, every single week we have uh, those in the front or on the sides by the exits that would love to pray that over you um, should you desire that. And that's open to anyone who wants prayer uh, this morning. Um, so let's go ahead and have the communion servers come on up. And uh, so now if you're taking Jesus, if you trust him, if you see him as your only hope to be brought into the presence of God, come and take communion and celebrate that together. If you haven't taken Jesus yet, we encourage you to pray that and ask him to reveal himself to you even now.